This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor as though Paul. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. As though I what? That's what I'm trying to figure out right now. <laughs> None of that's supposed to make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm doing well. Um, little inside baseball here. We are shooting a little later in the day than usual. Mm-hmm. And so, or we're talking a little later in the day. And I'm just curious to see how I do without some coffee flowing through my veins. But who knows? Maybe I'll reach new heights. Yeah, I, I never record late in the day. Well, not quite true. Um, in the afternoon, this is a unique time. I don't know how we'll do. We'll see. But we do have a really exciting topic today, listeners. We've we've gone back to our highlight a publisher uh, feature of our of our podcast. We did NYRB Classics, uh, you know, the end of 2021, and we had a really cool giveaway there where NYRB Classics had offered a, a lucky listener a one year membership to their book club, where they send out a book a month. Something you're a member of, right, Paul? Yep, absolutely. And we have a really cool giveaway today, too. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. But yeah. look forward to that. Archipelago, we'll get into them in a minute, but another one of our absolute favorite publishers. But before we get to that, I do have one item of business, and then I want to ask you what you're reading, Paul. But item of business first. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Boxwalla. I think I've brought them up before on the podcast, but it's a really cool book box company. That you know, oh yeah, I brought them up before because I got like their facial cream mm-hmm. cleanser cream, and it's so nice. I still use it. I'm probably going to use some later today. Nice. <laughs> I really enjoy it. Um, but they do their their boxes, and the April box. They did a little crossword teaser on Instagram today. But I do know what books are in their April box, and so I wanted to bring those up because this is just to, to explain. The, their type of curation. I really like their taste. The book that they will send to everybody, they have their fixed book. Everybody gets uh, Yoko Tawada's newest book, Scattered All Over the Earth. That's I'm excited about that. Um, that looks like a good book. I like Yoko Tawada's uh, books that I've read in the past. And this one, I think, looks really interesting. And then you get to choose one of the following three books. Uh, they have the debut novel of the Ukrainian writer uh, Yevgenia uh, Belorusets. I don't have no idea if I'm saying that even close to right, but I can say the name, the title, "Lucky Breaks." <laughs> <laughs> nice job. So, so there is the that uh, debut from a Ukrainian writer. They have the Irish writer Molly Keane's uh, Booker shortlisted "Good Behavior." came out from NYRB about a year ago as a reprint. And then they have, and this will maybe suit you, Paul. I know you've been digging in a little bit here. Thomas Bernard's The Loser. Oh, yeah. I can't remember which one of his you read last year. That's the one. That's the one? Well, there you go. Yeah. If anybody's on the fence, that's definitely a good way to go if you're a Bernhard fan or if you'd like to explore a little bit more. Yeah. Yoko Tawada, the fixed book, and then any one of those three you can choose. And, you know, I recommend... uh, jumping on these boxes they're they're fun they always have little uh, you know a few other goodies inside of them and the boxes themselves are really nice boxes they're just they're fun to get in the mail and then they're very usable (laughs) if you go on so but a little bit about boxwalla paul what have you been reading yeah, I have been reading. So I, I talked a little bit a, a month or two ago about my Shakespeare project, and it was kind of uh-huh. in its infant stages at that point. So I just wanted to catch you up a little bit on that. So I am loving this project. I'm trying to still keep it pretty relaxed. 
And so I've been shooting for roughly one play per month. And most of the time I read the play over a weekend, you know, sometime during that month. Um, so the first one I had done was Macbeth back in January. And then in February, and it was actually just a week or two ago, I finished Othello. So, oh man, I've just been loving this project. It's been really nice to do it at a pace that I feel comfortable with. It's not pressure or anything like that. And um, as I may have mentioned, I have been listening to the plays while I'm reading them. And that obviously hearing them performed takes it to a whole nother level. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to commit myself, but I'm pretty sure in March, I'm going to go with the winter's tale. That's the one I'm kind of eyeing right now. So that's one thing I've been reading. And then the other thing is um, a book we've talked about in the past a little bit, In Memory of Memory mm. by Maria Stepnova, uh, translated by Sasha Dugdale. And um, yeah, I'm not too far in, maybe 100 pages or so, but I'll just give a real quick uh, read of the cover copy. It says, with the death of her aunt, the narrator is left to sift through an apartment full of faded photographs, old postcards, letters, diaries, and heaps of souvenir, a withered repository of a century of life in Russia. Carefully reassembled with calm, steady hands, these shards tell the story of how a seemingly ordinary Jewish family somehow managed to survive the myriad persecutions and repressions of the last century. So, you know, that's just a little quick summary. It's so good. It's that blend that we've talked about where it's a little bit of essay, a little bit of fiction, a little bit of memoir, you know, it's not any one thing. And and as I've talked about in the past, that's really been doing it for me lately. I, I like those kind of books. So it's ticking a lot of boxes for me. You know, there's time, memory, the lives of objects and photos is really fascinating. So yeah, that's what I've been uh, mostly reading these days and really, really enjoying it. That's one I have a, I've had on my book stand for a, a while, always kind of looking for that perfect time to start it. Mm-hmm. And I just need to, to start it. I, I need to jump into it. When I saw yeah. you were reading it this weekend on my Instagram thing, I thought, oh, maybe I should maybe I should join in. I don't yeah. know if I'll be able to, but yeah, it's I, I mean, I will say it's not I always when I say it's not an easy read, I don't ever mean that in a pejorative or, or a negative sense. It's it's more of just the subject matter and also just the way that it is fragmented. It definitely requires your full attention. It's not mm-hmm. a breezy read, but at the same time, it's not like it's a slog by any means. It's fascinating stuff. You know, like I said, talking about all these different lives and history and she's pulling these objects off the shelf and she'll go off on these little rabbit trails following one person's life or find a cache of letters from like her grandpa to her grandma or, or different things like that. So it is really interesting. And yeah, I was in the same boat as you. It had been sitting there for, you know, probably six months at least. And I kept thinking, oh, I got to read that. And for whatever reason, the spark struck and this time I did it. So <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah. It's one that reminds me of Gallery of Clouds, just mm-hmm. talking about having that perfect day where you can read for several hours in the morning and go for maybe a little walk out on the cliffs, you know, in the in the wind and then read yeah. into the evening. That doesn't ever happen anymore. <laughs> maybe someday in the far future, but that definitely seems like a book that would be very suitable for one of those very days that you can kind of expand into. I know. I agree. And that, like you said, that's what I would like to do is just you're at a cabin by a lake or something sitting on the porch or somewhere where you can kind of drift in and out. I mean, that would absolutely be ideal. But as we all know, reality doesn't give us too many of those times. So sometimes you just got to grab it while you can, which is what I've ended up doing. But yeah, it's really good. I, I think you should definitely pick it up when you get a chance. But 
right. about you? What are you reading these days? Well, so you were talking about Shakespeare and kind of doing your goal, a, a reading goal you set for 2022. And one of mine was to read the, the three novels of Penelope Fitzgerald that I haven't read yet. So I started The Gate of Angels, just pulled oh. it off the shelf and, and started it. This one takes place in 1912 in Cambridge. And I'm not very far into it yet either, but I was so happy to get back into Fitzgerald's writing. Um, I'm going to read the opening paragraph because it's just so fun. It's, it's chapter one and it, it's uh, titled Fred's Three Notes. It's not really relevant to the, to the paragraph. So, but here's the paragraph. How could the wind be so strong, so far inland, that cyclists coming into the town in the late afternoon looked more like sailors in peril? This was on the way into Cambridge, up Mill Road, past the cemetery and the workhouse. On the open ground to the left, the willow trees had been blown, driven and cracked until their branches gave way and lay about the drenched grass, jerking convulsively and trailing cataracts of twigs. The cows had gone mad, tossing up the silvery, weeping leaves, which were suddenly, quite contrary to all their experience, everywhere within reach. Their horns were festooned with willow boughs. Not being able to see properly, they tripped and fell. Two or three of them were wallowing on their backs, idiotically exhibiting vast pale bellies intended by nature to always be hidden. They were still munching, a scene of disorder, treetops on the earth, legs in the air, in a university city devoted to logic and reason. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I love that. It's, she's, I, I really like her unique style. I'm excited. I'm excited to, you know, again, I just have three more. I've kind of been saving them thinking, oh, I don't ever want to not have another Penelope Fitzgerald novel to look at after. But then I've realized, which I probably said in that episode, if I don't read them, uh, that doesn't mean anything. I got to, right. I got to just jump in and get going on them. So, so yeah. the gate of angels. Nice. I don't remember if I have that one. I, as I mentioned before, I have a stack of hers and I've only read the bookseller or no, the bookshop. Is that what it is? The bookshop. The bookshop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I loved. And for whatever reason, I haven't gotten back to her, but that little teaser right there definitely made me want to go dig around and see <laughs> if I have that one. Well, they're all so short and I, I don't remember when this was, it's probably been a decade ago. I went online and bought all of them in that Mariner books line mm-hmm. and they, you know, they, they just look so nice on the shelf. I really like how having, you know, thinking of Stuart, our friend, how he often has collections by authors that look very nice on a shelf all lined up together. Mm-hmm. And these Fitzgerald ones do, they don't take up a lot of room because they're, they're short. There's 10 of them, yeah. but you know, they probably take up less room than a couple of the big books I have on the shelf. Uh, you know, as one single book, mm-hmm. um, but very, very much recommend uh, folks give Penelope Fitzgerald to go. Nice. And I just looked, it looks like I actually do have that one. So <laughs> I might have to grab it. Well, all right, Paul. So we're here to talk about archipelago books or archipelago books. I don't actually know if I, I, I've always said archipelago. I think my teachers in, you know, in elementary school always said, well, there's an archipelago. What's an archipelago class? Mm. And probably we're saying it wrong. So help me, help me be better and say it archipelago. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as we go I on. think either way is fine with me. I, I, I've always heard archipelago, but I'm, I'm fine either way. So you're the one who chose them. Not that I had any uh, disagreement. They probably would have been the next one I chose too. Mm-hmm. But what has been your experience with them? Why are they special? We'll give, give listeners who have never heard of archipelago books 
a reason to go look them look into them. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start off with kind of just a quick little history, and then I'll get into mm -hmm. some more specific reasons for me. But they were founded in 2003, and they publish 16 new titles each year. And the amazing thing is I was looking it up, and they only have a core staff of five people, mm -hmm. which I never would have imagined that they could do everything they do with that small of a group. So um, it's divided up into 12 to 14 works of literary fiction and poetry. And then they do two international picture books each year for young readers under one of their imprints, which is known as Elsewhere Editions. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen some some um, copies of those Elsewhere Editions, you know, in their catalogs and elsewhere. Yeah. I've never actually seen one in person, but they look like they're just gorgeous, really nice illustrations. Have you had any of those? Yeah, I think I may. They, they've been sending me those, I think, since the beginning of the imprint. And they're very well produced. I mean, this is not just a little paperback thrown together kids book with glued bindings. I mean, these are nicely uh, produced kids books. So yeah, definitely, definitely give that a, a look as well. Elsewhere editions. Yeah, absolutely. And and so as we get more specifically into why I think they're so important and and good and you know one of my favorites is there's that statistic that floats around that less than three percent of new literature published in the U.S originates outside of the Anglosphere. So that whole idea of how, how little translated fiction we actually get. And so I think that's one of the reasons why they are so important. Um, just the, the variety of voices that they make available mm -hmm. to, to us is amazing. It's so diverse and I don't know, they just, they all kinds of different things. There's, there's poetry, there's short stories, there's big books, there's small books. And, you know, if I'm getting into specifically why I like them, you know, not to be too shallow, but once again, just like we said with NYRB, man, for one thing, they just look so gorgeous. Anytime. Yeah. Same yes. thing. Like if I'm at a bookstore and I see that little distinctive square shape with, it's often like an earth toned colored, you mm -hmm. know, not all of them. Some of them are bright, but I feel like a lot of them are kind of nice earth tones. And so they're eye catching in their own way. They're kind of subtle, but yeah, I love the paper stock. I love this reading them. They're, they're this square shape that actually kind of reminds me of a mass paperback, like all the good things about like how you've talked about, they're easy to read and hold on to. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I feel. So I don't know. Yeah, there, there's a spaciousness on the page too. These are not square books that are filled up to the brim, um, mm -hmm. margin to margin. There's room on that page for for you, you know, as the reader. Mm -hmm. If you want to take notes, you can. But I, I actually don't know if I've ever written in an archipelago book. <laughs> but I really like how much room there is on there. I don't know. It just feels... It feels welcoming, and yeah. the, the, you're right. The paper that they use is beautiful. The art that they use on the outside, uh, I mean, they they just they their books you could turn um, outward facing, like like the cover to face the outside of your mm -hmm. bookshelf, and they'd be eye catching for people, you know, yeah. to walking by to see a bunch of these uh, facing out. Um, that was what struck me with them first. I first started um, kind of catching on to them in 2008 or so, about the time the Best Translated Book Award first started, because the first winner was Tranquility by Attila Bartis and uh, translated by Imre Goldstein. This, that was the, I think the first winner of the Best Translated Book Award that I can remember. There may have been one the year before that was a little bit more informal, but Tranquility. And so I went and looked up archipelago books what is this and was struck by their you know how they how they looked and how they felt mm -hmm. in the hand to read so definitely worth uh worth that 
their beauty too. It extends like, have you, do you ever get their print catalogs in the mail? Uh-huh. Cause I, yeah. you know, that online they're, they're beautiful by themselves, but man, when I get those, it's almost like getting another book. I think I may have talked about this before, but just the quality of even something like that, their catalog is, is pretty mind blowing. So yeah, I was trying to think how I first came across them and I don't remember a specific incident, but I'm pretty sure it was around the buzz that accompanied when they ended up kind of stumbling onto the Nausgaard um, uh-huh. books in the My, the My Struggle, Struggle series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've read a little bit about that. And I think obviously those were huge in Scandinavia. So it wasn't like it was some, you know, quiet fly-by-night author. But I do think that when they got those books, that made a huge difference for their notoriety. I think that really gave them a big boost in it. I'm pretty sure that's how I came across them. And as I've mentioned before, I've only read two of the six so far, but those are ones that I keep wanting to return to. And those are hardcover. Like they, a lot of their books are this really cool paperback with a like an almost an art stock mm-hmm. um, paperback cover. But they do put some of those specialty, you know, series and whatnot, like the Knausgaard My Struggle books. Those are mm-hmm. hardcover with dust flaps and and or dust jackets, yeah. and look really nice lined up on the on the shelf too. Those do take up a lot of room. Yeah, they do. <laughs> now they, I actually have them on top of one of my bookshelves. Like it, it's not even on a shelf. And it's funny you mentioned that because the first one that I have is actually in the paper stock. And then I have two through six mm. in the hardcover. And it's one of those things that we've talked about. Like, can I justify like going out and buying a hardcover, even though I already own the book just to get it to match? And so far I've I've held strong. But yeah, someday if I ever see one in a used bookstore or something, I might have yeah. to grab it. So I have a matching set. But yeah, no, but they are. There's just I, I pretty much love everything about them. They're one of my very favorite publishers. I'm really excited to talk about them. Well, and, and look at this. I'm going to read the languages they translate from. They're not the only publisher who translates from a kind of a variety of languages and some that don't, you don't hear about a lot. And then they do have French and German and Italian. There, there's quite a few of, uh, in mm-hmm. their lineup. But Afrikaans, there are several from, from the Afrikaans. Arabic, several from Arabic. Basque, Bengali, Bulgarian, Catalan, uh, Chinese, Croatian, Czech, Danish, Dutch, French, of course, like I say, there's quite a few French books, uh, German, Greek, uh, Hebrew, Hungarian, Icelandic, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Kurdish, Norwegian. There's all the the Nausgaard books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Polish, Portuguese, um, Romanian, Russian, uh, Slovenian, Spanish, certainly uh, quite a bit of Spanish, Tamil, Swedish. Turkish and Urdu. There may wow. be a few that I missed as I was going through, but that's a big variety of languages. You can travel a lot by getting their books. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you think about that 3% statistic, you know, whether that's accurate or not, I think it's probably pretty close. And if you take that 3% of translated fiction, can you imagine how much of that is made up of probably Spanish, French, maybe Italian? So mm-hmm. that takes up a huge chunk. So I think that makes what they do even more valuable, like you said, even if all these other languages are underrepresented, just think about some of these other languages that people would never be exposed to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And they're really, they're really good books. There's, there are some that are a little bit whimsical. There are a lot of, there are a lot that are quite serious um, in their lineup. Yeah, but... there are. <laughs> That's something I was going to bring up here about my choices today. So yeah, <laughs> we'll get into that. Well, what we're going to do then today, listeners, just like we did with the NYRB classics episode, Paul and I are each, limited to choosing three (sighs) 
ones that we recommend. Three of our favorite archipelago books. We'll talk a little bit about each of our choices. And then we're going to join you in the in the, the giveaway stuff that we'll talk about here in a minute. But um, Paul, why don't you talk to us about your first book, your first yeah. one on your list? Yeah, this was another difficult task, like we always talk about. It's hard to narrow it down, but I'm very happy with my choices. Although I will say... I did not go with any of the whimsical today. Uh, so brace yourselves. The first book is Sarajevo Marlboro by Miljenko Jurgovic, translated from Croatian by Stella Tomasevic. So this is a book of short stories that is set in Sarajevo, largely during the Bosnian War. Um, so it was the first book by this author, Miljenko Jurgovic. And he was a journalist who was working for a Sarajevo newspaper during the war. Um, and apparently this newspaper became very famous during the, the siege of Sarajevo because they continued printing. Apparently they only missed one day during the entire war of printing. And he was right in the middle of all this stuff. So his, you know, street cred, so to speak, he was, he knows this stuff when he's writing about it. I mean, it's like he was in the nitty gritty the whole time. So I'll just quickly read the cover copy. Uh, Croatian by birth, Jurgovic spent his childhood in Sarajevo and chose to remain there throughout most of the war. These stories are distinctly of the material world, and they are shaped by Jurgovic's deeply personal vision, subterranean humor, and a razor-sharp understanding of the fate of the city's young Muslims, Croats, and Serbs, the minute details of their interior lives in the foreground, the killing zone in the background. So I think that's a really good description because despite this being a very war focused book, I mean, it's running throughout the entire book. Most of the content is not about the war itself. It's about the people, the city, the relationships, the neighborhoods. Um, so I really like what they said about, you know, the minute details of their interior lives. Cause that's definitely what I liked about this book. There's no plot per se running through the book. Um, instead, the stories just kind of joined together to, to paint a picture of what life was like in Sarajevo and Bosnia both before a little bit and mostly during the war. Um, and like I said, I really like how it focuses on everyday events. It just shows how life, even during these horrific circumstances, continues to go on. Uh, you know, people still need to go get food and water. They still have neighbors that they have petty squabbles with, as well as, you know, maybe some bigger things related to the war. So I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and I will admit that this this war specifically in these countries are not something that I feel like I'm especially, you know, definitely not an expert. In. And I, if anything, I feel like I kind of have a blank spot there. And so I really appreciated, you know, just little things like there was insights into the culture, lots of references to kind of their folklore and things like that. So it's really interesting. So um, I thought I would just read this little um, excerpt here and it touches on one of the other things I liked about this book where, during the war, there would be a lot of Westerners and other people from other parts of the world who would come in, often well-intentioned. They were trying to do the right thing to help or to cover the war. But it kind of picks up on some of the condescension and maybe the stereotypes that came along with that. So I'll just read this part here. It says, the American nods his head. I can tell that he doesn't understand or even care what I'm saying, but I don't take offense. Why should I? I like to have a chat while I'm digging. It helps to pass the time. He asked me if I'm sorry that I ended up in Sarajevo under siege after having been around the world three times. I tell them I didn't end up here. I was born here. And God forbid that I'd ended up dead and buried anywhere else. Who on earth would remember me or speak about me in respectful tones? Besides which, the graveyards in the rest of the world, 
and especially in America, are not like the ones in Sarajevo. Elsewhere, they line the dead up in rows like soldiers in uniform with identical headstones, as if their souls had been cast from a mold. The American continues to nod his head. I say that he shouldn't hold it against me if I utter disparaging remarks about his country. But then the idiot asks me if I'm ready to die now in Sarajevo. I tell him that I've thought up hundreds of ways to stay alive, and I like all of them. Each one reminds me of the joys and pleasures of my life, because nobody's happier than me when I escape a shell on my way here to dig graves in this beautiful spot for the unlucky ones. I know that the dead used to celebrate being alive too, and that they just happen to lose a life the way some people lose a pinball at the end of the game. Having scored 100 points 100 times, you could have scored more, but you didn't. Life is only valuable because you know you have it. Death always finds you unprepared, without tangible proof that you ever lived. Perhaps you weren't much good to yourself or to others. Isn't that why your wife and children cry at your funeral? Because they have a sense that you foolishly squandered your life, like a chicken that refuses to die, even after you've chopped off its head. <laughs> so, you know, obviously dark, but there's kind of that, I don't know, it's kind of like a straight shooting, a little bit of a gallows humor that flows throughout it too. Um, so anyway, I, I really like this book a lot. It's reading these short kind of punchy stories. I mean, most of them are probably five pages or less. It has me really intrigued about his other book, which just came out to, to a lot of acclaim last year, Kin, K-I-N, which is a huge doorstopper of a novel. And so after reading these little tiny five page snippets from him, I'm very interested to see what it would be like to read. I don't know. I think that book is probably seven or 800 pages long. So I'm looking forward to reading that. But anyway, um, I just wanted to add too that reading this book, I didn't time it this way, but with everything going on in the world right now, you know, in Ukraine and all of that stuff, a lot of the parts of the city under siege hit me especially hard while I was reading these books. And it was made an already powerful book, probably even more powerful for me. So really good stuff, but not light reading by any means. Not light reading. I think because of that, I'm going to not do my one I was going to do for this first one and go with one that does, I think showcase maybe a little more of the, not necessarily whimsy, but maybe a lighter, a lighter flair. And I've talked about this author recently because they did just publish Autumn Rounds by Jacques Poulon at the end of last year. But I want to talk about Jacques Poulon's 1978 novel, Spring Tides, just translated from the French by Sheila Fishman. This book is very unique and, and fun. It's about a man who lives alone on an island. In fact, let's let's just see if you can catch where where this where this quote you know that starts this novel, the illusion here, Paul. In the beginning, <laughs> mm. he was alone on the island. You know, just this, this mm-hmm. little biblical, little biblical yeah. there, and he translates uh, comic strips every week. He gets his work done, and he I, he considers the dictionaries and reference books that he uses. Uh, they took the place of the friends. He didn't have Hmm. Uh, one day the guy who kind of runs the island and, and, and put him on this island to do this work says, you know, I put you on this island in order to uh, make you happy, you know, give you a chance to be happy. This is the boss. He comes every week to drop off new things to translate and take the other ones back. And uh, one week he drops off a woman named uh, Marie. And he says, uh, when, he, when he does this, my dream is to make people happy. That's why you're here on this island. And it's why I brought Marie here too. Obviously, I don't think I'm God the Father. And I didn't tell myself, it is not good that man should be alone or anything like that. But I thought you'd have a better chance of happiness if there was someone here with you. 
And so Teddy Bear is the name of the guy. It's not his real name, of course. The the guy who the translator and Marie, they don't live like they didn't live in the same house. They're actually on different sides of the island. But their friendship, which is very awkward and forced, and yet kind of something they did both want, is very interesting. But it's the little touches of this story that really get to me. I really like this this part here that comes up in in the novel. It's 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 from Vincent Van Gogh, but it's 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 part of this novel too. And it says, "There may be a great fire in our soul, yet no one ever comes to warm himself at it, and the passers-by see only a wisp of smoke coming through the chimney, and go along their way." Hmm. It's a very lonely book, but a very hopeful book, a yearning book. And I find those really heartbreaking, but also heartwarming in weird ways. It makes me appreciate what I have, makes me seek to be better and Mm -hmm. to connect with people in in a different way. And I really, I I love this book. I I loved Springtide. It's been a long time since I read it, so I don't remember every little detail or anything like that. Um, probably time to get back to it because I really loved, you know, revisiting Poulon's work with Autumn Rounds um, last year. So, but yeah, Jacques Poulon's Spring Tides. I'm glad you picked that one. I, after you talked about Autumn Rounds, and I think it was one of our listeners who actually uh, recommended that one mm-hmm. to us both. Um, that was one that I actually added to my list um, for for my subscription to Archipelago, where I said, I think I've said how there's certain ones kind of like the Box Waller where you get the same book, but then they give you a little bit of flexibility and I added autumn rounds to my wish list. I haven't gotten it yet, but sometime this year, I can't wait to dig into some of his stuff. Sounds really good. Yeah. So why don't you talk to listeners a little bit more about what you have going on with archipelago archipelago books? Yeah. So they have a couple of different memberships. And so um, a couple of years ago, I subscribed to their standard subscription model or their membership model where you receive uh, one one book roughly per month. So I think it's about 10 to 12 books per year. That was something that I just really enjoyed. They have a specific book they send out each month to all the different um, subscribers, probably similar to the NYRB model. And then I took a year or two off and then recently I decided it was time to go big. So they have something called the Constellation membership. So under the Constellation membership, you receive uh, two books roughly per month. One of them is the same book that was included in the regular membership, the one that everybody gets. But then they will also send you one of their backlisted titles and they will curate that for you. Or if you choose to, you can give them a wish list of, of some of their backlisted titles that you would like to include. So I've blended those two things together and I picked roughly six books from their backlist that I wanted to get over the course of the year. And then I said, why don't you guys just send me six more based on my taste that you think I would like? So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's It's wonderful. I love it so much. And anybody who can uh, swing it and, th- and thinks that's something that they might like to do, I, I can't you know, recommend it highly enough. Well, this is the exciting part of the, of the episode. Time for a giveaway. Yes. And I don't expect every publisher to join us on these things, even to give away anything, let alone something so big and generous. But Arch- Archipelago was interested. They said, oh, yeah, absolutely. They are sponsoring a standard membership giveaway to a U.S. listener. International listeners outside of the U.S., we kind of went back and forth on that, but the international shipping right now is so expensive that even though they do charge international shipping, they take a loss on that. 
because it's more than they they, they charge. In fact, I, I see that happening quite a bit with mm-hmm. uh, with book orders and things. People are taking a loss to get things shipped internationally, and so we decided let's make this a U.S. only giveaway this time. And Paul and I may spring for some international archipelago surprise in another episode. I know we've Absolutely. got some that, that we're, we're looking to looking for homes for. Um, but for this one, one U.S. listener will get a standard membership to Archipelago. That's about uh, one book a month, uh, essentially. It's each new book that they publish over the course of the year. And yeah, it's exciting. I, right. I hope it goes to someone who's looking forward to getting these beautiful things in the mail and sitting down and and having that tactile feel as they go through it. So what do you need to do in order to enter this contest, to get an entry into the contest? Well, we want you to go through the Archipelago uh, catalog on their website, and we want you to do two things. One, pick a backlisted title that you think looks interesting or that you recommend. It can be one that you've read. And tell us a little bit about it, why it looks interesting to you why, or why you're recommending it. And for a second entry into the contest, please look at their forthcoming list and tell us a title from that that you are interested in picking up. That's what Paul and I are going to be doing at the end of this episode. We each have one backlisted title that we've not read that we're going to read. And then we each have one of the forthcoming books that we're, we'll are we talk about for a second that we're most looking forward to on that list. That was tough to pick. Oh, I that know. was, I was really say, tough to pick. <laughs> yeah, listeners, I just want to warn you, it's going to be hard to narrow it down because they have a very extensive back catalog. And looking at their forthcoming stuff, there's so many good books that are coming out even yeah. in the next few months. We'll give you some pointers. You know, that'll be our job at the end to show our, our, our example. We'll be examples mm-hmm. to you. But yes, you will email um, me, mooksandgripes at gmail.com. That email will be in the show notes. And what your email needs to contain is one backlisted title. And I'll have links to the to this part of their webpage too. And one upcoming, you know, forthcoming release. And that'll, be, that'll give you two entries. We are releasing this episode. It's Thursday, March 10th. I want us to be able to pick a winner on Saturday, March 19th which is when we're recording again um, our next episode. So the winner will be drawn Saturday, March 19th. You have a little bit more than a week. We will be trying to, to remind you, you know, on our social media. But on Saturday, March 19th, when we sit down to record, I'm done, I'm done tabulating, I'm done adding entries um, at that particular point. It's usually about 8 in the morning, mountain time. <laughs> yep. And... And so that's that's when you need to have the entry in. And that episode that we record on the 19th will be released to Patreon listeners on March 22nd, Tuesday. But to, to you know, in more general release, it's uh, Thursday, March 24th. That's when the winner will be announced and we will be in touch to get your address and get this going for you. Yeah, this is such an amazing gift. Thank you so much to Archipelago. And I really want to encourage listeners, I mean, get your two, get your two entries in because... This would be a wonderful one to win, for sure. All right, before we get to where we do our part to, you know, give an example of, of how to do that entry, we've each got two more books that we want to, to talk about that we've read from Archipelago that we want to recommend to you. Paul, what's your next one? 
Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you went with something a little lighter because I think this one, if anything, is even darker than my last. And it's I know it's one that's pretty popular among a lot of uh, readers, and it's called An Untouched House by, I'm hopefully going to pronounce this right, Willem Frederick Hermans, translated from Dutch by David Calmer. So this is, I'm going to try not to use the word bleak too many times during this description, but it is a very bleak and brutal book. Um, Apparently it's long been regarded as a classic in the Netherlands. And I was looking back at this book. I'm amazed. It's only something like 80 pages long. It's amazing how much of a punch he packs in this short little book. Um, I really like it because it does such a great job of capturing kind of the confusion and brutality of war, but also kind of the amorality, I guess would be the way to say it, of just survival. So um, basically the narrator is a Dutchman who's caught up in the Second World War. It's kind of towards the end of the war. He's been away from his home for about four years. And it turns out he's been captured by the Germans several times and he's escaped and he's just kind of making his way, trying to survive in this pretty terrible landscape. And so he's joined up with this group of Soviet-led partisans and they're battling on the Eastern Front. And as the war starts to near its close, um, there's kind of these skirmishes that are just going on and he gets caught up in one between the Nazis and the Soviets. Um, So he's in with this group and he doesn't even really speak the language of most of the people he's in there with. And so his, his commander gives him this order and he doesn't really know what he's saying. And so he kind of wanders off into this town. It's kind of a spa resort town. That's where the battle is taking place. And so he stumbles along and, and he finds this really big house and he just goes in and he just starts looking around. He's left this kind of hellscape of this battle scene and chaos And all of a sudden he's just in a real genuine home. And it talks about how it's been years before he's seen anything since he's seen anything, just like tables and windows and all these things. And so he kind of just settles in and he wipes his feet before he goes in. And then he just starts wandering around and exploring. And eventually he actually climbs into the bathtub because it's been so long since he's had a bath. And so I'm just going to read a little excerpt here. It says, I stepped over the tub's low rim and lay down. My sense of hilarity passed. Some of the water trickled into my mouth. It tasted like the water spouting from the fountains on the corners of the streets. After lying in it for several minutes, I got the impression it had an ossifying effect. I would gradually fall asleep. All feeling would slowly withdraw from my body, from the outside in, concentrating in one spot and then disappearing into nothing. First, my skin would grow numb, and then in the end, I wouldn't be able to feel my heartbeat. If people stopped feeling altogether the world would be greatly improved. And so it goes on talking a little bit about both the the bathtub, but also you get the sense that he's talking about some bigger things as he's kind of obviously shell-shocked and just dealing with the brutality of what he's been seeing. Um, So eventually he falls asleep and he's awoken by the ringing of the doorbell and he wakes up and it turns out while he was sleeping, his his, uh, fellow soldiers have been beaten they've been routed and they've been chased out of town and it's now under nazi occupation Um, fortunately for him he's not wearing his uniform and so they assume he owns the house and so they just let themselves in and start billeting in the house and hanging out with him and this leads as you can imagine to all kinds of craziness Um, so you know i won't go into any more details because in a in a book as short as 80 pages you quickly get into spoiler territory as you can imagine but i will just say it's Again, bleak, but it has like a thriller feeling to it. It's a page turner because he's caught in this life or death situation in this in this uh, house full of Nazis. 
So anyway, I don't know. It, it's kind of one of those that's hard to explain because it's it's very short and very, very intense. But hopefully I've at least given a little taste of what it's like. Um, from the Guardian review, it says, it takes an hour or two to read, but An Untouched House is the kind of book that stays with you forever. And I thought that was a description. I haven't read that one yet. Ooh. Yeah. You it's make intense. me want to, but also, again, make sure that I'm at the right frame of mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If if you want any kind of like a trigger warning on this one, it, you need to be in a good spot in your life to probably appreciate this one. But, um, you know, I've read a little bit about the author. I mean, there's no denying he was a nihilist. He had a pretty dark view of humanity. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know. This is covering some pretty dark material. And so there are times where you know, I, I do like light books and I do like when people can put a good positive spin on something. But at the same time, sometimes when you want to just face what war does to people and to humanity, sometimes it's worth just kind of staring into the face of all this darkness. So that's definitely what he does here. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll grab that one and, and go through it sometime. Yeah, <laughs> let you know absolutely. How, it, how, it, how it strikes me. Sounds good. All right. Well, my next one is The Twin by Gerbrand Bakker. This is translated from the Dutch, also by David Colmer. Mm, <laughs> so, so we're both going for Dutch uh, books here and both uh, from David Colmer. Um, this book came out, oh, I don't know, a decade ago too, uh, in, in English. And it won the Impact Dublin Literary Award. And I had, I, I had not really heard of it that much, but when it won that, I thought, oh, let's check this thing out, an archipelago mm-hmm. book that, you know, is getting some good attention there. Um, when I started it, I had I, I had to put it down a few times, you know, thinking back to, like, when we were talking about Blood Meridian. Mm, right. <laughs> some books are captivating, but just don't feel like you're in the right frame of mind for it. And this one was very much like that. It starts with a, a son, you know, an, old, an older son, um, being quite... Um, uh, mean to his elderly father who's practically an invalid mm. and here's how it starts I've put father upstairs I had to park him on a chair first to take the bed apart he sat there like a calf that's just a couple of minutes old before it's been licked clean with a directionless wobbly head and eyes that drift over things I ripped off the blankets sheets and undersheet leaned the mattress and bedboards against the wall and unscrewed the sides of the bed I tried to breathe through my mouth as much as possible. I'd already cleared out the room upstairs. My room. What are you doing? He asked. You're moving, I said. I want to stay here. No. Mm. (laughs) So he's moving his father upstairs. It's been... um, He's basically been taking care of things at this home. He's been living with his father for about 30 years, ever since his twin brother was killed in a, I think it was an auto accident. Uh, this, this twin brother was the one who was supposed to take over the farm, the one that the father, you know, liked the most, but he comes back and it's been years of abuse that he's now paying back with more abuse. Mm-hmm. It is not a, a healthy relationship. It's never been a good one. And the way that this book goes through this terrible relationship and the way that it's written, it, it, it's very stark and cold. There's, I remember parts where, you know, he's put his dad upstairs and there's frost flowers on the window mm. and you just get this sense of, you know, this, this 
poor man who is an awful man, but poor man who is, this is how he's spending the last years of his life, is upstairs basically waiting to die um, to, so his son can finally, finally take a little bit of charge in his life and redo the downstairs for himself. And that's kind of just the, the first um, the first little bit of the book. You know, there are other people who come and into the story and, and I won't necessarily give, I don't want to give any more away, but it was very surprising. Um, it, it, the original, the original title, Bovinis Het Steel, which I'd probably mis, mispronouncing, but the Dutch title doesn't mean the twin. It means it's quiet upstairs. So very ominous, yeah. especially when you wow. read those first those first pages and realize what's going on. Um, but we, you know, we feel that silence as his son tries to make his own life downstairs finally. Mm. So yes, also quite dark and and can be kind of tough, but mm-hmm. a very a very good book. One that again quite acclaimed too. You know, to win the impact, you have to have some popular support as well as critical support because. Those are books submitted by librarians. Oh, um, yeah. And so there you go. There's my second choice. Wow. That sounds really good. That's one that is on my radar, but I don't actually have that one. So might have to change that. <laughs> well, my last book, I won't say that it is necessarily light because it's not. But um, this might be my favorite book that I've ever read from Archipelago. Um, I actually reread it in the last week just to see how how and if my feelings have changed and it just kind of solidified itself as, as a favorite. And that is love by Hanna Orsavik mm. uh, translated from the Norwegian by Martin Aiken. And this is another one of theirs probably that's not necessarily um, a hidden gem because this one received a lot of acclaim as well. It won the 2019 pen translation prize and it was actually a national book award finalist for the translated literature. So you know, there's been a lot of buzz about this one, but I would just say it is all absolutely justified and I don't think it can get enough attention. Um, it tells the story of a woman named Vabik and her son, John, and they've recently moved to the far, far northern part of Norway. So speaking of cold and dark, this one, I mean, a big part of this book is the darkness and, and the cold and the forest, and, and it has this very kind of ominous feel to it. Um and it almost acts like another character in the novel, to be honest. So this book follows the two characters through just one evening of their lives, and it goes on into the night. And one of the things that's so fascinating about this book is the way that the author just deftly intertwines their two perspectives. They're rarely together. The, the father or the mother and the son are, are rarely together throughout the book, but all throughout we're getting this interplay between their two perspectives. So when we get the mother's perspective, um, we come to realize, you know, she's often very preoccupied with her own concerns. You know, she's thinking about her new job. She's thinking about dinner, her clothes, you know, potential romances and that type of thing. And she also tends to read a lot to escape reality. And she kind of uses things like a trip to the library as a goalpost through the week to kind of get her going, which was something in the beginning where I was like, I could kind of relate to her. You know, she's she's struggling and and she's a single mother and she has this child and she's setting up these little things. So, you know, at first I was thinking, you know, she's clearly someone who's struggling through parenthood and life like so many others, but I could kind of feel some empathy for her. But then where the things start to get a little more complicated is when we start to see things more from John's perspective. 
So he's obviously also very focused on his own life as he tries to, you know, sell raffle tickets for his school club and he's often daydreaming and things like that. But um, we quickly realize that the following day is his birthday. He's going to be nine years old. And so as we get these views into his mind, obviously he's thinking a lot about that. He's firmly convinced that his mom is going to bake him a cake. And that's one of the reasons he leaves the house to begin the novel. He wants to give her some time to work on it. Well, unfortunately, we find out as we get into her headspace that she's completely forgotten that it even is his birthday. So you have this automatic tension and sadness right from the beginning. Um, so, you know, I'm going to just read a, a couple quick little snippets, just one from her perspective and one from his. I, I won't go on and on, even though I could, because the writing to me is just stunning. But um, I mentioned how she goes to the uh, to the library sometimes. And so it says, the cars are parked up in rows outside the community center. Some people are sitting inside them because of the cold, rolling down the windows to chat with someone they know in the car next to them, engines idling. Fabique pays no attention. She slams her door shut and checks the handle to make sure it's locked. The fun fair, she thinks to herself. There's a fair that's taking place in the, in the town. That's what they're there for. There's hardly ever a soul in the, in the library. People should make use of it more often. It's such a pleasant place to come with potted plants and nice posters on the wall. She goes toward the entrance. The library's in the community center basement. Someone whistles, but she doesn't turn to look. It looks dark behind the glass doors. There's a sheet of paper with the opening hours on it stuck to the other side of the glass. Fabique realizes she's mistaken. Late opening is Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Wednesdays, they close at three. I forget this place is so small, she says to herself. She drops the books through the return slot. It almost hurts to let go, the way they splay out in a heap on the floor. It's like leaving some people of whom she's grown fond. And so I like that part. That was pretty early where you're still thinking, you know, not that she's a bad person, but you're starting to see her perspective a little more before you start to realize that, you know, she's actually pretty self-absorbed and and not doing a very good job kind of to the point of kind of endangering her, her child a little bit. And so I'll just quickly read this other section. So as they go their separate ways, she ends up going out and doing her own thing for the evening. And she basically just leaves John by himself. And so he continues to convince himself that she's probably out getting supplies to make his cake or doing something, some, some planning for his birthday or something like that. But then he comes back and her car's not there. And he says, she doesn't like to drive in the winter. And here it's winter all the time. She's crashed and maybe now she's paralyzed and will have to sit in a wheelchair. Maybe no one's found her yet and she's bleeding to death. Or maybe the car's about to burst into flames and she's going to die from the pain. He tries to imagine how much it hurts when your skin is on fire. No one's found her, and she's all on her own. He feels himself blinking. He screws up his eyes and presses his fists against his sockets, as if to press them into his skull. Maybe if he presses them far enough in, they'll dangle about inside his head and never find their way back to the hole where they can see out. Then I'll have to have my birthday at the hospital, he thinks, with my head wrapped up in white bandages. She'll have to bring his presents and the cake there. Maybe she's run out for something for the cake, he thinks. Eggs, maybe, or flour? And now she's popped out to borrow some. That'll be it. She forgets things all the time. She says she's like a doddering old professor who thinks so much he can never remember anything. She'll be back soon if that's what's happened, he tells himself. He should have known. So it's just, I don't know. I wanted to, it's its hard to capture exactly the tone because it, it builds on itself throughout the book as you're immersed in these two minds and they start to interweave with one another. It kind of builds on itself and you get a better understanding as time goes along. But I just wanted to give you a little snippet inside of each one of their heads. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's one of those books I'm going to have a hard time summarizing, but all I can say is rereading it 
like I said, solidified the fact that I think it is my favorite of theirs that I've ever read. It's absolutely stunning. I knew you were a big fan and is she, I hate to ask you to spoil it, but is she going to come up here in a few minutes? Um, you know, a, she has a forthcoming book. She does. <laughs> I, I decided to stick to my credo of mentioning as many different books and authors as I could. So I gotcha. was very tempted to mention that book and I guess we are mentioning it now, but I decided to go in a different direction. All right. Well, but yeah, I, that said, I can't one wait on there. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Very cool. And she just had one come out last year too. The pastor. The pastor. Yeah. Which right. is also very, very good. I read that this last year. It's another one I'd recommend for sure. Oh, we're breaking our rules. One, 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 one. Stick to the three books. And that I'm, one was I'm your one, fault. I'm the I'll one doing you. it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my book that I'm going to mention last, and and with like you, I mentioned I'd save it for last. It's my favorite that I've ever read from them. I was hoping and you'd mention this one. You probably know what it is. Yeah, Stone mm-hmm. Upon Stone by Wieslaw Mislewski. Uh This book just is is very special to me, and I can't quite say why. It, if I if I talk about it, it sounds very much like many others. It's the, it's a guy kind of reminiscing about his life. You know, it tells stories about things he's dealing with right now. And then you flash back and see things he's dealt with in the past. It gives you a little bit more sense as to who he is. But it's, it's about so much more. It, it's, it's a deeply philosophical book told from the perspective of this relatively simple person in Poland who's part of an old world. You know, he's still, he's not wealthy. He's still drives around on a, a horse and and a cart. In fact, one of the best chapters in this book is him at an intersection waiting for one minute where he can cross the road with his horse and cart so he doesn't get hit by a, by another car and people are backed up behind him, getting mad at him. And that goes on for some time, but it is a delight to read. It's very funny. Um, and he's got a very funny voice. He, you know, the archipelago blurbs really kind of nails it this is someone who has suffered, but who has enjoyed life none, to the fullest nonetheless. And he's got a lot of great things to say. And here he is kind of, you know, um, maybe getting toward the end of his life. But, you know, he's not old necessarily, but he's getting there. And he is building a tomb. And that's really what the book is about, is him trying to figure out ways to finish this tomb. It, it starts with this. It says, having a tomb built, it's easy enough to say. But if you've never done it, you have no idea how much one of those things costs. It's almost as much as a house. Oh, they say a tomb is a house as well, just for the next life. Whether it's for eternity or not, a person needs a corner to call their own. I got compensation for my legs. A good few thousand. It all went. I had a silver watch on a chain. A keepsake from the resistance. That went. I sold a piece of land. The money went. I barely got the walls up. And I didn't have enough for the finish work. So that introduces what he's doing. It introduces maybe a little bit of his voice. He's kind of a cranky old man, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it also introduces a bit of his life. He's got land he's had to sell. He has this watch from the resistance. You know, those stories are going to come up. And he has family, um, in particular some brothers, and they, they visit uh, at, a, at a time. And... they basically come into the door, barely cross the threshold, said their hellos when they started in on me. And so they leave pretty soon after that. And the man thinks. Because when brothers only get together once in such a long time, they ought to have something to talk about. Talk all day and all night. 
even if they don't feel like talking, because what are words for? Words lead the way of their own accord. Words bring everything out onto the surface. Words take everything that hurts and whines, and they draft it all from the deepest depths. Words let blood, and you feel better right away, and not just with outsiders. With your brothers also, words can help you find each other, feel like brothers again. However far away they've gone, words will bring them back to one life, to the one life they came from, like from a spring, because words are a great grace. When it comes down to it, what are you given other than words? Either way, there's a great silence waiting for us in the end, and we'll have our fill of silence. Maybe we'll find ourselves scratching at the walls for the sake of, a, of a, the least little word. And every word we didn't say to each other in this world, we'll regret like a sin, except it'll be too late. And how many of those unsaid words stay in each person and die with him and rot with him? And they aren't any use to him either in his suffering or in his memory. So why do we make each other be silent on top of everything else? Mm. It's filled with these little passages. Again, while he's often complaining because one of his pigs died or complaining because he can't cross the stupid highway, (laughs) all these (laughs) new cars that are zipping down the road. There's a lot of beauty and humor in this book um, that's exploring a lot of pain, but most importantly, a lot of love love that is forged through pain you know there are parts where he doesn't talk to his family for for years mm. and then it's hard when they do talk but there's something there there's that connection he talks about in that passage i just read and i you know i i, I just adore this book i need to read it again it's it's a big one it's like 600 yes. 700 pages but definitely one that i i'd spent too long since i read it and want to get back to it um love love that book so yeah. there's my there's my top choice. That was a great summary. I read that one prompted by reading about it on your blog and I read it. I think I mentioned this before I read it. I took it with me to Mexico, even though it was a big old 600, <laughs> 700 pound book. And I have some wonderful memories of reading that book well, you in a hotel in Mexico. I need to read it again, though. Yeah, that it's, it's a special one. Mm-hmm. And it won the best translated book award like, you know, like Tranquility did a few years before. Mm. And it also won the 2012 Penn Translation Prize. So listeners, again, Paul and I have always bonded over translated literature. And this is one of the best in the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've I didn't pick these books because they won translation prizes and I wanted to talk about them. And I don't, you know, you, you talked about a few too, Paul. They're just that good. They're, they're yeah. the ones that are getting, get, get, some of the ones that get noticed mm-hmm. um, out there um, for good reason. So... Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, w- one of you will be able to, to go home with uh, with the next batch. Again, we kind of talked about how pick an old book that they published that you haven't read or, you know, that you have read or haven't read, but that is interesting to you. Tell us why. And pick a book from their catalog that's forthcoming that you want to read. We're going to do that now. Paul, what's one of their backlist titles you haven't read yet that you're most looking forward to? Yeah, this is one that I just actually got recently. It was another one that I added on to my little Constellation prize and it came, or my Constellation membership and it came to me. And it was one that actually our good friend Dorian Stuber about a year ago sent out this really, yeah, he sent out this really kind offer to people that if they would, you know, send him their address, he would send these handwritten book recommendations. And he sent out a ton of those things. 
and I got mine in the mail and this book was on there and I've been wanting to get it ever since. And I finally got my hands on it. It is Alina Veer by Louis Coupier, translated from Dutch by Ina Rilke. So yeah, this is another one kind of like stone upon stone. It's a, it's a big old chunky book. It's over 500 pages. Um, and I actually didn't really even know anything about it until he recommended it to me, but apparently it is a, it's described on the cover copy as a psychological masterpiece inspired by Flaubert and Tolstoy. And it says, Alina Veer is a young heiress, dreamy, impulsive, and subject to bleak moods. Though beloved among her large coterie of friends and relations, there are whispers that she's an eccentric. She's been known to wander alone in the park, as well as indulge in long, lazy, philosophical conversations with her vagabond cousin. When she accepts the marriage proposal of a family friend, she is thrust into a life that looks beyond the confines of the Hague, and her overpowering, ever-fluctuating desires grow increasingly blurred and desperate. So it's actually an older one. It's from 1889, um, which I did not realize. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to to reading that one. So that's that's the one that's on the back list that I'm most looking forward to. Hmm. Yeah, I, I read that one back when it came out, and I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. The reason I didn't put it on my list, I kind of thought you might put it on for this mm. one, so <laughs> I cheated a little bit in I'm hopes, glad. and yeah. it worked. It worked out. It paid favor. off. Cheating always does for me. I don't know. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad that the, between you and Dorian both recommending it, that makes me even more excited. So. Well, the one that I'm picking is one that I've had for years as well. And again, I, I didn't even recognize this. It was shortlisted for the the 2010 Best Translated Book Award, and it won the Pen Translation Prize. I just saw that as I'm looking here. And I just saw that it kind of says there, you may also like the twin. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I they think I might like this one. It's, <laughs> it's Hugo Klaus's Wonder. It's just sat on my shelf for a really, really long time. And I've always thought, I'm excited to read that. I've heard good things about it. It's translated from the Dutch by Michael Henry Heim, a very important translator. You know, um, there's Penn Heim um, Translation Prize now because of his work. He passed away sometime in the last decade or so. And this one definitely came with a lot of hype to me. But... All I know is really what it says in the back. It says, in his novels, Hugo Klaus lays bare the haunted underbelly of 20th century Flanders with portraits of a shattered society and warped psyches rising to a mythic pitch. Well, that's heavy. That sounds mm-hmm. heavy, but it's called Wonder, so there must be something good there, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I don't know that one, actually. I'm looking it up now as we're talking. And what interesting cover art. And it does. It sounds really good. Like we're noticing, there does seem to be some trends. Like, again, I know that they have plenty of more whimsical and lighter um, offerings, but they definitely are not afraid to to talk about, you know, some of the many struggles that Europe and other yeah. parts of the world have gone through. And I don't know, I find that stuff just fascinating because for one thing, it fills gaps in my, there's many gaps in my knowledge and it helps to do that. But also just so often times of struggle and, and war and poverty and different things create some of the most amazing literature. So, Well, and that's very much what this one is. I just read kind of their introductory blurb, but here's how it goes on. While exposing the remains of Flemish fascism 20 years after the war, wonder tracks one man's descent into madness. And there's the personal too. It's not just a societal mm. or a war, but the man's descent into madness. Victor 
A bewildered teacher pursues a mysterious woman to a castle in a remote village. There he finds himself trapped among a handful of desperate individuals still living out their collaboration with the Nazis. As Victor's sanity begins to crumble, he poses as an expert on their messianic leader <laughs> who disappeared <laughs> at the Russian front, but whose return they believe imminent. I mean, this just sounds fascinating to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I need to pull that one aside and not just make it something, oh, Paul, I'd like to read that one, but make it a book that I'm reading here in the next little bit. I know. Yeah, they're one a publisher that I tend to do that treatment like we were just talking about where I have them up on this pedestal and for good reason because all the books that there's that I read I love but then I send I end up saving some of their books. And so this is a good prompt for me to pull some of those down that have been sitting up there and actually start engaging with more and more of them. Well there you go. All right, we promised also to look at a forthcoming title and oh, man. and recommend one. This was ready? especially brutal. Holy cow. They have so <laughs> yeah, many good books. I could books. have picked many, many, many of these. Me too. Many of them. Well, hopefully we didn't sit on the same one. I, I doubt it. Um, the if one we I, did, I can quickly change. because Okay. Have, yeah. <laughs> I should make you go first. Then. No. Um, Salka Valka by Haldor oh. Laxness is the one I decided to go with. It's translated from the Icelandic by Philip Rufton. Um, I do actually already own another book by Laxness called Wayward Heroes from them, which mm-hmm. I have not yet read. But as I was looking through the different blurbs of the upcoming books, this one just really caught my eye. I'll just quickly go through it here. It says, on a winter night, an 11-year-old Savor and her unmarried mother, Sigurlina, disembark at the remote, rundown fishing village of Osier, where life is lived in fish and consists of fish. The two struggle to make their way amid the rough, salt-worn men of the town. After the mother's untimely death, Salvor pays for her funeral and walks home alone, precipitating her coming of age as a daring, strong-willed young woman who chops off her hair, earns her own wages, educates herself through political and philosophical texts, and soon becomes an advocate for the town's working class, organizing a local chapter of the Siemens Union. A feminist coming-of-age tale, an elegy to the plight of the working class and the corrosive effects of social and economic inequality, and a poetic window into the arrival of modernity in a tiny industrial town. So I don't know, that one just sounds so fascinating to me and unlike anything that I've read before. So like I said, there were several choices, but that one kept coming up. And I think that's the one that's going to top my list. All right. Nope, that is not the one that I chose to finally go with, though it was definitely on on my, my list here. Um, the one I'm going to go with is... I, th- I think it's it's very important author's work. Not that uh, all of these guys, you know, that we've talked about aren't important authors, um, but this one in particular, I find very, uh, I find her work um, very vital to what is going on right now. You know, today with with so many things that are that are happening, and she's still writing. Um, she had a piece in the New Yorker a, a few, you know, maybe a year or two ago. I can't quite remember. Um, but this is Scholastique Mukasanga. And the book that, that is coming out, and it comes out in October, is called Kibogo. Um, so I first got to know her work with Our Lady of the Nile, put out by Arch- Archipelago, and then Cockroaches, put out by Archipelago. They've also published a couple, you know, a few more of her, her books, but those two were just you know, again, tough. Mm. She, she was born in Rwanda and a lot of her books deal with the, the horrors that happened in Rwanda 
um, in the, the 20th century. And she brings it kind of up to, to now too. Uh, they're, they're, they're hard stories, but again, really important ones and written so well and translated so well. This, this one will be translated uh, from the French by Mark Polizotti, um, who shows up quite often on these books. Mm-hmm. But Kibogo's story, it says, is reserved for the evening's end when women sit around a fire drinking honeyed brew with just a, when just a few are able to stave off sleep. With heads nodding, one faithful storyteller will weave the old legends of the hillside, stories with church missionaries, or stories which church missionaries have done everything in their power to expunge. Mm-hmm. Um to some, Kibogo's tale is founding myth, celestial marvel, magic incantation, bottomless source of hope. To white priests, spritzing holy water on shriveled, drought-ridden trees, it looms over the village, forbidden, satanic, a witch doctor's hoax. I'll debate the twisted roots of this story, but deep down, I'll secretly wonder, can Kibogo really summon the rain? Um, this, th- but, but she's doing this, it says, and I you know, of course haven't read this yet, um, it's a clash between ancient Rwandan beliefs and the missionaries' determination to pr- to replace them with mm-hmm. European Christianity, uh, which I find a fascinating, um, you know, thing to explore at any rate. Uh, but yeah, very excited to see her take on it because again, she's one of my favorite authors that Archipelago publishes. Uh, period, and. Uh, you know, when I saw that she had one coming out, that was, it was, it was hard to not talk about the other ones coming, but very easy at the same time to settle in on this one. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned her because Cockroaches was actually one of the books that was on my potential list to, for one of my three recommendations. Um, yeah. And that would not have lightened any of my, my no. choices at all. Cause it's very dark, but like you said, she's an amazing writer and actually, Lady of the Nile is one. I own it, but I have not yet read it. So I look forward to reading that one in this upcoming title as well. She's, I'm, I'm really glad you picked her. She's an amazing author. Yeah. So both of those books on offer, you know, whoever wins will be able to get that membership and these books do come, you know, they, they will arrive at your doorstep. So yeah. I look forward to these entries, everybody. Um, if you can't figure out how to send me an email, if something's just not working, uh, find me on Twitter at MOOCs, M-O-O-K-S-E, or Paul at Bibliopaul, um, we we will we will make sure that you don't get left behind uh, just because of a technical difficulty or mm-hmm. something's not clear. Uh, you know, we, we want this to be very broad and and open to people. Uh, we want to hear what you have to say about your choices and share those because that's where so much of this joy um, resides for us. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorite things. Like when we did it for the NYRB episode or or the end of twenty twenty one episode hearing different people's recommendations or the things they're looking forward to is, is so much fun. So I would encourage everybody both for yourselves and selfishly for me, cause I just want to hear from you. It's so much mm-hmm. fun. So yeah, we're looking forward to this. We're really excited and uh, yeah, be sure to, to dive right in. This is a great offer. Well, Paul, I know I told you earlier, I don't necessarily have a recommendation, but you said you did. And I'd love to hear it because I do have something I want to bring up to round out the episode here at the end. Okay. So I yeah. uh, apologize for springing it on you, but um, no. I, guess, I guess that's where, 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 where we'll go. What, what's your recommendation? So my recommendation is for a film. It's called Man Push Cart. It's mm-hmm. a 2005 film by Raman Varani. And 
this is one that I just rewatched within the last couple of weeks, and I had seen it probably five or six years ago as well. Um, it's the story of a Pakistani-born man who operates a food cart right in the heart of Manhattan. And so much of the footage, especially early on, is just these really fascinating early morning scenes. It's shot almost like a documentary where it's just him going to get his cart from the, the storage area and he's washing it down with this hot water and you can see the steam rising. It's probably like 3 or 4 a.m. And he's pushing it through the city as there's all these cabs moving around and you can see other early risers in the cities, often like garbage men or people, you know, sweeping in front of their shops and things like that. And so a lot of it is just this very, like I said, it almost has like a documentary feel to it. Um, And then that transitions over into these really quiet scenes of him just stacking bagels inside of this food cart and putting tea bags into paper cups. And it's just, there's no dialogue. It's just a very day in the life kind of feeling to it. And I just found it very fascinating and kind of mesmerizing, but not glamorized at all. It's clearly a very tough life. Um, so as the story moves along, we come to learn that he was actually kind of a rock star back in Pakistan and he was married and he had a child. And so that kind of comes out in little dribs and drabs and we don't get the full backstory. And then as the film moves along, we start to get more and more of that. Eventually he encounters this woman who works in a newspaper stand just down the road from him as well as this really well-off businessman who has some background in Pakistan as well. And those two relationships take over the second part of the film and, and lead into some more, you know, conflicts and different things like that. But boy, um, I don't claim to be any kind of a film buff or connoisseur like you are. Um, you know much more than I do about, you know, the history of film and everything, but I keep seeing it compared to like Italian neorealism or French new wave. Those are the two things that kept coming up as far as labels. I came across it first through Roger Ebert, who mm. towards the end of his life, like I said, I did, I read a lot of his stuff, especially towards the end of his life. And he really just raved about this film and this director in particular. So in his review, he described it as free of contrived melodrama and phony suspense. It ennobles the hard work of which its hero earns his daily bread. And Barani as director not only stays out of the way of the simplicity of the story, but relies on it. Less is more. And with restraint, he finds a grimy eloquence. So I thought that was a really great way of putting it. So it is on um, Criterion channel among probably some other places. But yeah, I, I really like this movie. It's, it's one of those movies that, like I said, I probably saw it for the first time maybe five or six years ago. And some of those movies that you just always think about in your day-to-day life, this is definitely one of those for me. And on a rewatch, it, it definitely held up. Yeah, you, you just say the word and all those images of the early morning preparation for his job just come mm-hmm. flooding in to me because it's done so well. Um, if you haven't seen it, I recommend they, they released both it and Chop Shop um, at the same time a, a year or two ago. And I'd recommend uh, Chop Shop to you too, Paul. I think you'd like it too. Maybe not yeah, quite I- as much, but I think you'd still, it still kind of does some of the same things. Yeah. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. It was on my radar back when it first came out, but I never saw it for some reason. So I'll have to add that to my list. All right. Well, my, my recommendation. <laughs> so, so about a week ago and I, I did, a, I, I talked to Paul, I Marco Polo Paul when this happened about a week ago, you know, uh, mascot of the show, uh, Brandon Sanderson mm-hmm. posted a video on YouTube where he does these weekly updates and he looked, he looked, kind of 
sad and a little bit, it was ominous. It was like a minute and a half. And he's like, oh, I've been working on this book, but I have something I need to to go over. I need to give you guys an update on something. Um, there'll be more about it tomorrow. But he doesn't look happy. He doesn't look, you know, he just kind of ends there. And everyone's like, oh, it's maybe, and, and if, if anyone deserved it, he would. Maybe he's cutting back and he wants to let us know not to expect so much from him. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that's the worst of it. You know, it's not like something even worse. Right. Um, but, but you know, the next day comes and he has this video about, you know, I've got to come clean. I've been, I've been a little bit irresponsible. I've, I hoped that with the pandemic, I could just keep on working as per normal, but that, that this wasn't the case. And then he reaches over and he pulls out, you know, a stack of pages and plops it on and says, I wrote an extra novel. Oh my God. <laughs> and so he goes through this and, you know, we know what he's been working on. He's written several that we know about that are coming out and he's written this extra novel and he shows it on the table and he gets up and in professor mode kind of goes through and says, you know, I didn't have to travel over the last two years, which was like taking up a third of his, of his year, wow. you know, traveling 120 days a year. Does, not having to do that. He's like, I found myself with this time that I could do my own thing. And he wrote it for his wife, this first one. And it reminded him of his early days of, of as a writer, you know, without the expectations and such. So he really loved it. So he pulls out another stack and plops it down. And he's written an, a second mystery, you know, novel. And he kind of talks a little bit more about that. And then he pulls out three more. He has written you know, behind the scenes and his team didn't even know he was doing this. He, he runs a whole team, you know, to do his, to, to help and to keep things organized. And, um, you know, he just, he just put them out one day, um, to, you know, surprise them like a, six months ago. And they started a Kickstarter that's gotten quite a bit of news because it is now the biggest Kickstarter in history by a few million dollars. The biggest one was a tech thing. It was a, like a smartwatch. Hmm. that that had like 20.3 or 20.4 million dollars in backers before before Brandon Sanderson comes along and with four pre-order novels essentially that none of us know anything about he is now at 23.8 million dollars oh my god <laughs> so, wow it has been re- he's almost at 100,000 backers I look at it right here it's 99,987 um I am one of them. I had to spring to get these when they come out. Uh, I did not go for all the swag boxes, though I am tempted just because I think it's so much fun what he does. Mm. You know, this this is so playful and 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 I kind of like to do it. But it's kind of it's you know it's not cheap to mm. do. Um, but but what he's doing is uh, every quarter next year you get the book the first, you know one of these books in a really beautiful hardback edition. Um, and then if you're one of the ones who wants the swag boxes for each of the other two months of each quarter, so eight in all, he'll send a, a, a swag box that's kind of themed on, you know, some of his books or, or characters or whatnot. And it's it, it's been so much fun to kind of look at this. So I know that not all of, you know, this is not necessarily why listeners listen to this podcast um, to hear all my Brandon Sanderson gushing but I had to bring that up and, you know, Hey, if you're wondering what he's all about, go check out this Kickstarter. Um, clearly he's onto something and I, and, and he's drugged me along the way too to be uh, someone who, right when I saw it, I texted my brother who backed him all in. I'm like, Oh, are you going to do it? I just did, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. 
and then I, you know, um, sign up for uh, for the hardcovers to come. And I've been texting with nephews and, you know, my, one of my sisters really likes this stuff and my mom, and it's just been kind of fun it's cool. and it's so silly, but it, it is that kind of fun that, that can be quite special. And I think memorable over the mm-hmm. years, certainly, certainly this will be memorable for him. It's, it's, it's running through the month of March. It has 26 days left. It's only been live for four days Jeez. and he's, 23.8 oh and he did just pass a hundred thousand it's a hundred thousand forty four backers now um but 23.8 million dollars there's my recommendation you know if you haven't if you haven't listened to me um over the past year about <laughs> checking out brandon sanderson and it's at all interesting to you um i actually think it sounds like these books might be fun places to start he did introduce the book the first book and read the first five chapters and he's released the first five chapters. And I checked it out. I'm not going to wait, you know, right, one of those right, who's right. going to just sit around and wait. And it was fun. It's whimsical. Um, but they're, they're there to check out and, you know, no one's ever texted me or DM'd me or sent me an email as a result of this podcast, wanting to share my love, Brandon Sanderson, but I'm here for you guys if you want to. <laughs> yeah, if there's somebody out there who's who's hidden and, and quiet, now's your time. Well, now's and how fun time. is it too that, like you said, the, the previous one was some kind of a tech gadget. Like that's what yeah. you expect. How cool is it that the biggest Kickstarter is based on a book books. or several yeah. books? I mean, that for anybody watching this pod or listening to this podcast, whether you are a Brandon Sanderson fan or not, that has to give everybody a little bit of a thrill. You hear over and over again how nobody reads anymore, books are dead, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is yet another clear piece of evidence that that is far from the truth. Yep, yep. And it can still be a fun kind of phenomenon, you know? I've always wondered, when are these things going to happen again? Where not just a few of us, but like culturally people get together to speculate about the next episode or the next book in a series or, you know, these things that are just fun to to talk about and everybody seems to be building up the hype. Mm-hmm. You wonder how many of those things can be left because we're, we get splintered and there's, you know, people binge watch now they don't, but it does still happen. Mm-hmm. Um, then this is, I think a good example of one. So absolutely. That's exciting. But, Very fun. Well, anyway, archipelago, <laughs> that's the topic of our, of our episode today. Um, I had to bring it back to Brandon Sanderson just because of the big news. And I agree. Very encouraging for readers all over the place. This is this is stuff that's inspiring people to to go out and, and get excited for something that comes out in like a year. You know, yeah, that's fun. Um, so that's our show, Paul. Thanks so yeah. much for joining. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you soon, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.